Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. My name is Kevin Canale, the policy associate here at MAKO, joined as always by my co-host, MAKO's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Glad to be back, Kevin. Today, we want to talk about the legislative session, and it's coming fast. It's cold outside here in Annapolis. There's snow on the ground, so legislative session is in the air And there are a lot of terms and lingo and deadlines that, if you're not familiar with the process, may sound foreign to you, may sound like a foreign language even. (laughs) Definitely would, yeah. (laughs) So today, that's that's the goal today. We want to take you through the process. We're going to talk about types of bills, uh, how a bill is introduced, what's the process for it flowing through the General Assembly, and then we'll get into some terms, some dates of interest, and we'll talk some more specifics. But Michael, let's talk first, uh, introducing a bill. So I think it's important to mention that only a legislator can introduce a bill, right? So MAKO cannot introduce a bill. We can't take it over to bill drafting and drop a bill. Uh, A citizen cannot introduce a bill. You have to go through a legislator, a senator or a delegate. Right. There's there's all sorts of people around Annapolis, uh, MAKO included, who have ideas for changes to the state law one way or another. And... All that is done through legislation. Uh, The unit of legislation is a bill. It's introduced in either the House of Delegates or the Maryland Senate, and it needs to be done by a sponsor. So it has to be a delegate or senator who who introduces the bill. Uh, There's a process to go and talk to the professional bill drafters. You can show up. If you're a senator or a delegate, you can walk in the door and say, I just have this idea, or here's my piece of paper, or here's the draft that I have in mind. But you have to put your name on it and introduce it in your name. It can't just be, here's an organization that wants to do this, or, or, or here's my constituent who wants to do it. It's got to be in the name of a sponsor. So you have to take ownership of that bill. Sure. And and there's some there are proxy ways to do this, too. And some of those are formalized. And it makes sense, right? Uh, uh, you expect that the governor and the administration uh, will have ideas for changes to law or things that they want to pursue. So the governor himself is not empowered to introduce a bill in his own name. But the the traditional process is the administration bills would be introduced as a courtesy by the presiding officers of the House and the Senate. No one can just introduce a bill. It has to go through a legislator, and it goes for everyone, even the governor. Sure. So what what you will sometimes see, and it can be a little confusing in the legislative process, is you might see Senator Miller or president of the Senate listed as the sponsor line on a Senate bill. Uh, But then parenthetically, it'll say, well, the real sponsor is somebody else has been introduced on the administration's behalf or on behalf of this particular task force or commission or something along those lines. So that's a way to signal to the membership, I'm doing this as a courtesy. It's not necessarily my idea. Right. So in 2017, there were 1,200 bills introduced in the Senate, 2,861 in the House, 935 of those bills passed. Some people are saying there may be even more bills introduced in the 2018 session, which is sort of hard to comprehend. But let's talk about a few types of specific bills. There are many different types of bills, but let's just get into a few notable ones here. So we have a constitutional amendment. This is a bill that amends the Maryland Constitution. It requires a three-fifths vote in each chamber and approval by the voters in the next general election. So, Michael, any thoughts on constitutional amendments? You've been around Annapolis for a long time. You've seen them introduced. Any thoughts on the process there? Any comments to add? Uh, it's, it sounds like it's a big deal, and in some cases it really is a big deal to amend the Constitution. But to be honest, there have been some things that have been pretty mundane and pretty ordinary that just because they're written into the Constitution, which is more permanent and lasting than than the the various you know the codified state laws, um, then you know then that takes this higher hurdle. So it's a supermajority vote. It's a sixty percent vote. 
in most circumstances, there's consensus on legislation. So getting 60% is not a meaningful hurdle to pass. Mm -hmm. Something that's politically thorny or difficult or contentious, though, uh, sometimes you have trouble getting to more than 50%. 60% might be undoable. Right. So that's a hurdle that the framers of our state constitution had in mind. They wanted that to be a tougher hurdle to pass. Uh, And then it has to sit before the voters. This is is, uh, kind of an interesting process that you don't want to put seven pages of legalese into you know, onto the ballot for voters to try and read and comprehend. So it actually becomes the duty of the Secretary of State to write a summary of the proposed amendment. Uh, so when you know, you, can, you can go to your Board of Elections, you can get a, get a copy of the full proposed amendment, but it's the summary paragraph is what appears on the ballot for you to vote to approve or not. And it's also important to note that the governor cannot veto a constitutional amendment bill. Right. So this this is by design. It's a special process. And the ultimate decision on that is to the people in the next general election, which also means constitutional amendments are sort of deliberately a slow process. You don't just whip them out and zoom, it goes and becomes law in a matter of a few months like an ordinarily piece, ordinary piece of legislation could. This has to wait until November of the next even year. So that waiting period and the approval by the voters in the next election, certainly by design. Right. Now, a lot of times you'll see an emergency bill, and a lot of people have questions about what that means. Is is it because of a certain emergency that's happening in Maryland? But really what it means is that the bill takes effect immediately upon the governor's approval, and it also must pass third reading with a three-fifths vote in each chamber. So again, the supermajority that we discussed with the constitutional amendment. Right. The the word emergency is 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 written into this process and and effectively the delegates and senators are asked to approve that this bill is necessary for the well-being of the citizens uh, the language all sounds like you're talking about the house is on fire right. but practically what you're talking about is we want this bill to go into effect at an earlier time that would be the conventional effective date most bills that are passed are effective on October 1st following the session session wraps in April that gives you several months for for you know analysis and review and potential rethinking that's you know that's the usual time frame a lot of fiscal things take place on July 1st. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of each fiscal year. So if you have tax legislation and so forth, a lot of that will take place on, on July 1. Uh, if you have something that's kind of a hurry, you can make legislation effective June 1. But under the Constitution, that's as early as you can go without making a bill uh, an, a, an emergency bill. So that's what this process is for. If you have something where there's a real problem and we want to fix it now, you make an emergency bill, and that means it's effective as of its date of being signed into law. So legislature can pass a bill on January 15th, get it to the governor. The next day, the governor signs it, and it's law January 16th. So it's really the opposite of the constitutional amendment. The emergency bill speeds the process along. The constitutional amendment slows it down. And, and in theory, the elevated vote is, is the, the, the temper on that to keep that from being a, a willy-nilly process. So we have a budget bill and we have a capital budget bill. And Michael, I'll kick it to you for opening comments on this process. Uh, it's a major process every year in Maryland. Uh, the governor introduces his budget bill to the General Assembly. And Michael, take us through what happens there. Well, the, the first the first thing that's interesting here is the word budget in legislative terminology has a narrower meaning than I think a lot of us think of intuitively. I mean, I, th- I think of the budget as you sit around the kitchen table with the family and you talk about the income you have and the things you're going to spend on, and it's sort of like the whole financial picture. Right. We can and, all picture that. Right. So, and, and, and at the state level, there is a fiscal discussion of a whole fiscal plan, and that includes how do revenues look and you know, our various programs and so forth. But the budget itself, uh, when when people in the legislative process refer to the budget, we just mean the process of spending money for this year. So that's what we mean by the word budget. We're not talking about taxes and tax, tax rates and revenues. Some of those topics are interesting mm-hmm. and some of those topics are lively. They're going to be lively this year in the wake of federal tax action. Uh, but the budget itself is just a spending plan for state funds for the year ahead. Uh, so that's, that's what we mean by the word budget. Um, the budget bill each year is introduced in both the House and the Senate. Like a lot of bills, it is cross-filed. There's an identical version in each of the two chambers. Um, 
the the House and the Senate take turns on which chamber is going to deliberate deeply on the budget first. So they take turns on doing that. Uh, but basically, the budget itself is entirely contained in one bill. Right. So the, the, the budget bill is the proposed operating budget submitted by the governor to both the House and the Senate, and the budget bill becomes law on approval by both chambers. So you don't need the gov- governor's signature here. Maryland is unique, not just unusual, but we are one of a kind with our budget process. I think by many people's reckoning, if you talk to the National Conference of State Legislatures or the Governor's Association, uh, they would probably say that the Maryland governor is the most powerful executive officer in the country because of our budget process. So in in Maryland, uh, the budget bill is introduced by the governor one, by you know by one week into the legislative session, and. That bill includes all the funding that can ever be in the budget. It has to come from the governor. Right. So the House or the Senate cannot add funding to the budget. It has to come from the governor, and that's what makes him so powerful. And certainly on budget process, I yeah. think almost anybody would agree that the Maryland governor by, by office is, is the most influential position. Um, and it's a big contrast with even what we see you know, down the road in Washington, D.C. in the federal process. Every president proposes a budget, but that is basically just a starting point for a big, complicated negotiation through the Congress in lots of separate appropriations bills and so forth. But the Congress basically builds their own budget. In Maryland, it all starts with the governor's proposed budget. The legislature's job is to find places where they feel like the budget can be reduced, mm-hmm. where money can be limited or corralled or, you know, that sort of thing, where they can fenced ask. Fenced off. Yeah, yeah. So some money can be fenced off and said, you know, th- this is a line on them, but it can only be used for these three purposes, that sort of thing. So money can be restricted, but they can't even move the budget, move money from one place to another in the budget. And uh, people from other states are astounded that the Maryland legislature can't even say, let's take $5 million from Program B and put it to Program F because that's the one that we want to fund. That's our high priority. So I guess you could say that the ability to fence off certain funds could be considered a check on the executive's power in Maryland. But again, the governor in Maryland, Governor Hogan at this time, is extremely powerful because the money that he in, that he proposes in the budget, that's going to be it. Uh, again, it has to be passed by both chambers seven days before the end of the session, or the governor must extend the session. So we've seen uh, usually the budget gets wrapped up yeah. fairly fairly quickly. This process of, of the, the deadline of the 83rd day of the 90-day session uh, sounds like it's a doom and gloom, but there's a process for, for extending that to the 90th day, and that's happened. We, we've, we've seen – We've seen it take till the last weekend or the very last day of session to pass the operating budget. Technically, that's the only thing the legislature has to do each year. They can't go home without passing an operating budget. So if they're not done on day 90, you come back on day 91. Everything else, it's possible to die. Even even the accompanying bill that we're going to talk about in a second, mm-hmm. the capital budget for, for you know building buildings and, and facilities and so forth, that doesn't have to pass. The operating budget is the only thing they've got to do. So you mentioned the capital budget. And again, Again, as Michael mentioned, that's a general construction loan or a bond bill that finances construction of state-owned buildings. So we're talking about brick and mortar here. We're not talking about the operating budget. This is separate. Right. And and for practical purposes, what we mostly mean in the capital budget is this is stuff that we're going to borrow money to pay for. And there's a there's a philosophy behind this. I mean, the idea of floating debt and, and taking on debt to do things you're doing today uh, there are that wrinkle some noses, and I, I think I think the best overall argument for why do you why do you build things with bonds is that's a way of saying you got a facility that's going to last a long time. Rather than paying for every nickel of it today, mm-hmm. you extend the payment of that of that project over at least a substantial share of its lifespan. Mm-hmm. So you build a school today, you build a jail today, a new building on a university campus, all those are going to be useful five and 10 and 15 years from now. So paying for it with a long-term bond and, you know, a, a highly rated um, agency like like the state of Maryland or even the county governments, we pay low interest on this. So it's not like we're paying exorbitant fees to borrow. You stretch that payment over a period of time and that sort of, you know, spreads that burden across the users. Sure. So again, the capital budget and the operating budget, two separate bills in Maryland. And let's get in now, Michael, to some terminology. So 
everyone listening has probably heard the terms first reader, second reader, second reading, third reading, etc. Let's talk about that process and what it means. So first reader is just saying that a bill is printed for the first time. It's assigned a bill number. Um, it's introduced in a chamber and read across the desk for the first time. <laughs> At that time, it's also uh, assigned to a standing committee. And, Michael, I know you think that this is sort of esoteric, uh, this terminology. Why do we use the terms right. first, second, third reader? Is it necessary? Right. Well, I mean, the term reading if really is something that goes back decades and decades and decades. I mean, right now, documents are available electronically. As soon as a bill's been introduced, it's available on a website, and we can pull up a copy and that sort of stuff. That's really easy to transmit this information. But decades ago, uh, the idea of pieces of paper and a copy for each Maryland senator to, you know, to be able to see what's being contemplated on the floor of the Senate, that was a pretty big ordeal. So back in the day, you literally had a person hired to sit in front of the deliberative body and read the bill. Right. And so we still use this language that it's kind of quaint, but we still use the language of the reading of the bill is what places a bill in, you know, in consideration before a legislative body. So the, the first time a bill is introduced, you know, that, that, as we talked about, that senator, that delegate uh, walks in, has an idea, now has a piece of paper that's the written bill, submits it, says there's, a, there's a, actually a physical place up in the, in the state house called the hopper. You drop your bill in the hopper, and generally the next day it's been assigned a bill number, it's been printed, and it's read across the desk. So now you're, it's in play. The ball's in play now. Okay, so let's stop in that process because after the bill is read across the desk and it's uh, assigned to a committee, that is really, really important. This is where all the action happens. So, you know, if you bring your second grade class down to Annapolis and you go to the State House and you bring them up to the gallery and they're seeing democracy in action, the best place for them really to see democracy in action would be at the office buildings adjacent to the uh, General Assembly, right? It's to the House and the Senate buildings where the committee hearings are held because that is where the action is and that is the most important pro- part in this process. It's, I mean, it's a little it's a little less sexy, right? These, right. The, these, these statuesque rooms and, and big chambers where you bring the entire Senate, the entire House of Delegates together. You get the shout out. Right, and that, that sort of stuff. That's great, and it has its purpose. And, and there are points, particularly toward the end of session, where that's where the real action is. The big debates are being hashed out on the floor. But the, the, the real labor of the legislature is the, the deep consideration of every bill that's been introduced. And there's no practical way to put all that stuff before the entire body. Right. You can't have the entire House of Delegates try and take up every single bill. There's just no way to do it. So as a practical matter, you got 141 delegates. They split into, into six policy committees. Every bill gets assigned to a committee and has a public hearing before that committee. And that's when they get a chance to get into the detail. Now, what that means is a given delegate sits on one of those committees, is either on, say, the Appropriations Committee and here's the budget and also other fiscal issues that are kind of related to the budget, or she might sit on the Judiciary Committee and hear about public safety issues and family law and other things that are before the courts and whatnot. Um, You have your own subject area, but you become more knowledgeable in those areas. Those committees become more expert in the subjects they, they, they are primary on. And the public hearings before a committee, you know, 20, 25 legislators on a committee, it's a manageable group, but that group becomes the lead on their subject matter. So the, their colleagues really rely on them for those subject areas. Sure. And if you don't sit, if you're a delegate and you don't sit on the Judiciary Committee, what you count on is that your neighbors on the floor or the other delegates from your district or from your county might, you know, tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, by the way, there's, you know, there's seven bills coming out of my committee this week. They're all, they're all fine. But the next report, there's this one bill. You want to take a look at House Bill 407. That one we had a big debate on. I voted against it. Let me tell you why. And there's probably going to be some, some fisticuffs on the floor. So, you know, at the committee hearing, you'll hear testimony from the bill sponsor, from proponents and opponents. Uh, The committee can add amendments to the bill. And then the bill is voted out of committee with uh, favorable with amendments, favorable or unfavorable, or without recommendation, which is very rare. Um, And then once it's voted out of committee, the bill returns to the floor of the chamber of origin, and it's accompanied by that report of committee action. Right. And this... 
this is now the second reading of the bill. And so the, the idea here is the bill is now, it was, it was sent back to the committee. The committee has issued a report, either we've killed the bill or we think the bill should advance and here's the form we wanted to advance in. It's now, again, the property of the full chamber. It's the full House of Delegates or the full Senate who you know, sort of owns the bill. It's theirs to debate and discuss. So you know, back in the old days, the crier would stand in the front of the room and read the whole bill. Here we just sort of say dispense with the reading. We all have our copy. Forget that. But and then they can then the full chamber takes action and you know just to reinforce this idea the real action is in committee mm-hmm. meaning that the overwhelming share of the time I mean literally ninety seven ninety eight ninety nine out of a hundred bills whatever happened in committee is a very perfunctory agreement by the full chamber so the judiciary committee votes out twenty bills they say these twelve are unfavorable meaning we think those bills are dead these seven are passed and this one needs these amendments. Pretty good chance that all 20 of those bills are the full House is going to agree with the committee. And in most cases, they're going to agree like 140 to nothing. Right. There's no, this is relatively uncontested. As a practical matter, uh, if your second grade class is watching the, the floor of the House on a typical day in March, you could be saying, well, what, what the heck is going on? No, there's nobody, nobody's standing up and yelling at each other. There's no actual debate here because they're mostly just doing house cleaning. The real work was done two weeks before in committee where they hashed out the amendment and it became a compromise. Right. Those policy experts on those committees have weighed in. They've heard the testimony both for and against. They've gotten the fiscal and policy note from the Department of Legislative Services, which uh, gauges a bill's economic impact on small business, uh, local governments and such. So really, that's where all the work is done. And then we have second reading. Now, second reading is important because committee amendments and floor amendments can be added to the bill. So this is the full bite at the apple for the for the entire body. It's been to committee. It's if a bill is is returned favorably, meaning you know we want we think the bill should advance and have further action. We intend to pass the bill. Then the full membership of the body, the, you know, the, we've been talking about the House of Delegates, all the delegates get a chance to weigh in with questions, comments, and if they want to offer their amendments, they can do so. There's a deliberate process here. The reason we have what's called a second reading and then we'll have a, another step called a third reading is second reading is your opportunity to make further changes. And, and anytime you make a change to the text of a bill, it's through a process called an amendment. Mm-hmm. So you introduce an amendment, say, here's what I want to do. I want to change the dollar amount. I want to change the, the effective date, or I want to change a whole new provision of the bill. Here's what I want to do. You get a separate vote on the amendment and so forth. But the, the idea is let's get all of the changes taken care of during this second step. And then on a third step, it'll just be a final up or down vote on the, the final proposal that's before the body. So, yeah. So then the third reading, uh, the bill is voted on for the final time. And no amendments may be presented on the third reading. And you either pass or reject the bill uh, through majority. So that's the process for first, second, and third reading. Those are terms that you'll hear a lot, and I know some folks who maybe don't know uh, Annapolis or the legislative process here very well. It can seem very foreign, but hopefully that uh, iron that out for you. Right, and we keep using the word final, but what we mean is final for the chamber of origin, a House bill going through the House. This is the chance for the House to put its put its stamp on the bill, and send it out of that chamber. So that bill, if it's coming from the House, gets sent over to the Senate. And then the Senate has a chance to look at that bill, add amendments, remove language, do whatever they want to do. They pass the bill. It goes back to the House if there are any changes. And then the House has to agree on the bill, on the changes made in the opposite chamber. And if there is, if there are two bills that are passed by each chamber and they're not exactly the same, then we have to get into a conference committee. Right. So there's there's a number of different steps that can crop up here and different terms that can crop up here, and this can get confusing. But the, the thing that makes it easiest is you have to have the full House and the full Senate have to have voted and supported the exact same version of the bill. One word cannot be different. Right. Yeah, so you can't you can't have an extra comma. It can't even be if, a shell or right, may. Yeah, right. Right. So it has to be the identical uh, the identical language in the version both sides have passed. And fairly often, particularly with complicated bills, the second chamber, you know, this this bill we've been walking through the House, it's passed out of its House committee, it passed on the House floor, they made their final vote, they sent it over to the Senate. The Senate makes changes 
Now the House has to decide, are you okay with the Senate changes? Are you ready to just take a, a final vote on what the Senate passed? Or do you want to have to work it out? And that's when a conference committee is appointed to say, it's not as simple as we'll take version A or version B. Let's work out our differences. In that case, the presiding officers or the the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House would uh, appoint three members from each of their chambers, five in the case of a budget conference committee, and they would work to resolve the differences in a bill. And each chamber, again, has to agree or the bill does not pass. It will die. It has to be an identical form. That conference committee will then release a report that will come back, and then we'll see if the differences are worked out or not. And this is the final part. Right. Once, a, once a bill has actually been worked out, here's the, here's the conference committee report, and no amendments, no changes, up or down, final vote. Very good. We're going to take a quick break here. After the break, we're going to get into some dates of interest, including a session timetable, important dates. We'll also talk about extended or special sessions. We'll get into all that after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Kevin Canale here, back with Michael Sanderson. And now we're going to get into some dates of interest. But before we do, even the word date can be somewhat ambiguous. Michael, what's the story here with legislative days? Uh, the, the term day, this is another you know sort of holdover from, from times uh, long ago. But we end up with the term day being used in a couple different ways here in Annapolis in the legislative process. And I, all I can really do is apologize for it and do my best to explain a little bit. <laughs> We've we have this happen a lot when county when when county officials are sometimes trying to track legislation and they call the Mako office and they say it looks like this bill went back in time uh, something happened on March 25th then the next action is March 20th how did that even happen um, the, the the short answer without belaboring it is the the legislature itself. Uh, will sometimes get on a on a calendar of its own that does not necessarily match up with the calendar the rest of the world is on. Right. So they will be there will be at times when they are on legislative day, you know, March fifteenth, even though all of our calendars read that it's March twenty fifth, that they are several days, you know, multiple days behind. Um, that is, it's sort of a procedural thing. It has some utility for the General Assembly. The downside is those of us who follow the process and try and explain the process sometimes have to have an asterisk over what the heck is going on, and it makes it a little trickier to follow legislative action. So, Yeah, it, it can be very complicated, but just so we are all clear, the dates we're talking about here are going to be real calendar dates as you or I would see them. And we thought it would be worthwhile going through the 90 days ahead. There are a dozen or so sort of circle the calendar because this is important for a particular reason. So let's walk through them. Sure. So the first one here, obviously, January 10th is when the General Assembly convenes, and that is noon, always on a Wednesday. Yeah, second Wednesday, uh, second Wednesday of January. And that's been the case since, I think, the constitutional rewrite in 71 or... About that, yeah. Right. January 17th is the final date for the governor to introduce his budget bill. We talked about the budget bill earlier. Obviously, this bill has to be introduced somewhat early in session. And and again, the the budget bill is the one bill that has to be passed during the legislative session. They can't they can't wrap up their business without being done with that. So there's a particular process in in the Constitution saying when it must be introduced. Um, for what it's worth, the, the process of developing the budget goes backwards months from this time. Sure. So it's formally introduced in a bill, and the, the various books and so forth that accompany the budget are distributed around this time a week into session. Uh, the process of developing the budget starts back in the fall. The, the, the governor and the fiscal leadership within the administration are working with state agencies and developing their plan in October, November. A lot of the stuff has already been at the print shop for a couple of weeks by the time this is distributed, but it becomes a formal public document on this day. Right. So this budget is not just being pulled out of the air. You know, they're making it in seven days. No, this is a lot of work that's gone back and it's finally has to be introduced by January 17th. 
Now, that does mean um, during a transition, when you go from one administration mm. to another, uh, when, you know, when there's an election change or, or, or whatnot, um, that ends up making this a tricky timetable. So Governor Hogan, during his first term, effectively had to go on a very fast pace, uh, you know, had an early November decision from the election and had to turn around a genuine budget by, by relatively early in January. That's a, that's a fast clip. Yeah, and it is complicated. It's a lot of work that goes into that. So, yeah, definitely a fast clip there. Also on January 17th will be the first meeting of the MAKO Legislative Committee. We hold our committee during session each week, and most every county is in the room. We're taking uh, votes on bills, and that will steer MAKO in the direction that the Legislative Committee wants us to go. Michael, any thoughts about just that process and MAKO's Legislative Committee here in Annapolis? Just that I, th- I feel like this is a this is a bread-and-butter thing for MAKO as an organization, that we are we are credible in Annapolis in substantial part because our positions are guided step by step by elected officials from across the state. I mean, geographically, we're lucky that Maryland is a geographically small enough state that we can ask we can ask county commissioners and council members from across the state trek to Annapolis every Wednesday morning through the heart of the legislative session and we'll present you with a list of bills to take positions and we want to know what do you want us to do we've got we've got able staff you know you and your policy colleagues here Kevin uh, at, at Mako do a really good job but part of the reason you know we get some of the deference we do is because we didn't just make this stuff up it's the elected officials who guided us that way. I agree with you. It's very important to point out that, you know, myself, Michael, all of the staff here at MAKO, we're not just making this stuff up and sitting around a smoke-filled room coming up with our own agenda. This is really guided by the counties and guided by our membership. January 23rd, the 14th day of session, this is the Senate and House Bill Request Guarantee Day. So at, at the top of this pod, we talked a little bit about it's the legislators who have to introduce introduce the bills. So these first couple weeks of sessions, uh, your, your committee that you've, you've been assigned to is having a variety of briefings and a few discussions about topics that are going to be important and things that are coming up and so forth. You as a delegate or as a senator are, are spending time talking to stakeholders on issues that you care about, um, working on drafting the bills that you plan to introduce. At some point, you need to take a piece of paper over to the professional bill drafters and say, I want this as a bill in my name. So this is the deadline. We're only two weeks into session, Mm -hmm. and that's when the guarantee date drops. Uh, A legislator needs to get in a request for a bill by this date to be guaranteed that you'll have a draft bill in time for introduction in your house. And as you said, only two weeks into session. And it's also important, I think, to point out that even though there's only a 90-day session, Um, legislators are working throughout the year. They're talking to stakeholders, talking to constituents, and a lot of that work is already done. By the time we get to session, they have their ideas or they even have a draft of the bill that they drop off to the professional drafters. But this is the absolute deadline where you have to have that piece of paper over there so that they can get the bill turned around in enough time to have debate, assign it to a committee, and then bring it back for a vote. So this is an important this is an important deadline for, for those of us who are involved in the front end of this process. I mean, you know, MAKO as an organization, every year we take on legislative initiatives. And this year we're going to be interested in legislation to help out our 911 call centers, right? So that's right. one of the things we've adopted as a top priority. So we need to have delegates and senators lined up who are willing to help us, who understand the issue, who are willing to put their name on something and you know they that they they should run us through the paces. They should they should run the traps on what what's going on with this Mako bill, what are these three components? I think this one is a concern. I'm worried about that. This should be a give and take, but we need a sponsor. We can't just put in a bill and have it be sponsored by MAKO. It's got to be sponsored by this senator and that delegate. January 31st, the State of the State Address. Right. So so this is effectively delivered as as a joint address to the to the House and Senate. Uh, it's an opportunity for the governor to lay out top priorities for the year ahead or talk about accomplishments or or frame some challenges. Sometimes it's a matter of talking about a legislative agenda. Sometimes it's broader and that sort of thing. You can do – there's soapbox and, and bully puppet kind of stuff that happens there too. But uh, this is in the Constitution as a venue for, to hear from the executive and frequently – 
it is framing a legislative package that's part of what the governor has brought to the General Assembly for that year. So if you're not familiar with Maryland politics or Maryland, you could equate this maybe to the State of the Union, which is delivered by the president, obviously, to the Congress. Mm -hmm. These next two dates are very important because no senator or delegate wants to hear that their bill has been assigned to either the Senate Rules Committee or the House Rules and Executive Nominations Committee. So for the Senate, you need to have your bill introduced by the 27th day or February 5th to have your bill assigned to a standing committee and not have to go through the process of going through the Senate Rules Committee to actually get the bill out. So the whole, I mean, the whole purpose here is get the bills introduced, get them out so everybody can see them, everybody can read them, the committees can start scheduling public hearings, and that the members of the public can know, you know, ideally, with a couple weeks' notice, the thing I care about is going to be heard on this particular date. I can circle the calendar. I can make my plans. If I need to take a day off work to participate in a public hearing, you want to give the public that opportunity. So you create deadlines like this for the senators and delegates, and the what it's backed up with is some extra pain Mm -hmm. in the process. If you miss this deadline, uh, the Senate's deadline is always a little bit earlier. That's set for a Monday. The House deadline is always set on a Friday. Typically, the the, the House will informally extend that deadline until the following Monday. Mm -hmm. But still, this is fairly early in the session. We're only a third of the way through the session. And the idea is, if you can't get your bill sorted out, drafted, and submitted by these days, then you're going to have to suffer some extra scrutiny. So if your bill comes in later than these dates, then it'll be assigned not to the policy committee. If you're dealing with something that's a a criminal justice matter, it would ordinarily go to the House Judiciary Committee. Instead, it'll be assigned House Rules and Executive Nominations Committee. So now... Just to get your bill to the committee where it'll be debated, mm-hmm. you need to go, you know, hope basically you and other sponsors will have to ask for the House members of that rules committee to convene a meeting. You have to go and basically grovel and explain what happened with the timing and so forth and convince them that your bill is worthy of being heard and advancing through the process. Uh, and there are years when bills simply die in the rules committee because folks are unpersuaded. They're like, you should have gotten this done on time. This will be the way to teach you a lesson. Maybe next year your bill will be heard. Right. So it is a way to hold legislators' feet to the fire, um, so to speak. But it also gives legislators a chance where if something does come up, uh, if a constituent raises an issue that's just happened and you're past the deadline, it does give you a way to make a late introduction. Right. So that's a... So you're sort of, you know, tier one is get it done on time and everything's smooth. Everything's copacetic. If you're done by this 30 or so days, then you're going to get assigned to a, to a reg, regular committee. It'll be there in time to have a public hearing and you get your day in court, right? Round two is if you're a little bit late, then you have to go to the rules committee. You got to grovel with them and get them to vote it out. And then you're into the regular process. There's another date that's later in session after which you actually have to grovel before the body just to introduce the bill. So this will happen late in session, and frequently you know, a senator or a delegate has to stand up and say, this issue was literally just brought to me. I only heard about it yesterday. I've asked to have the bill drafted, and they, they turned it around quickly thanks to the bill drafters. Now I ask your forgiveness and permission to suspend the rules and let me introduce this next bill. And we'll see those from time to time in the late part of the session, but this is geared towards Get your bills written and submitted early so that the public and the stakeholders all have time to read them, understand them, and participate. The next date that we're going to talk about here is the 63rd day, March 13th, committee reporting courtesy date um, for each chamber's committees to report their own bills. So committees need to have all of their bills done, reported. They need to take a position, send it back to the chamber by March 13th. So, so we've, we've advanced through a lot of time. In a 90-day session, you're only about 30 days in when you're supposed to be done introducing bills. And now it's about 30 days later, you know, give or take, mm-hmm. is, is, the, is the date when the, the standing committees are basically asked by the full body, hey, everything that you intend to pass – 
get it out, get it on the floor so we can take action. Right. Because, you know, as we talked about, we talked about this bill moving through the House of Delegates from its committee to the floor, and then it has to go through the Senate. There's a back end of this process, too. Right. So we're already now, um, you know, the 63rd day of a 90-day session. We're two-thirds of the way through, and this is where we're sort of waving the flag saying, okay, you've had several weeks of time for the committees to have public hearings. Some of those bills seem complicated, and you sent them to small work groups or you've had a subcommittee that's been meeting to go through technical issues. You've been gathering information. Maybe the attorney generals weighed in on legal issues and so forth. All right, you've had time to do your homework. Now the stuff you plan to pass, get it out of committee, get it moving to the floor, and let's take some final actions on things. And then we get to March 19th, the 69th day, which is crossover day. This is a big day. Yeah. Think of how much time has elapsed now. You had it was you know it was several weeks ago. It was early February was the introduction date for all these Senate bills in the Senate and all the House bills in the House. So you know you should have been putting in your bill when the groundhog is looking for his shadow. And then the groundhog saw his shadow, goes back underground for six weeks. Here we are. It's about six weeks later, and here's where we're talking about the Senate should be passing the Senate bills it plans to pass. So that's a big window of time in a 90-day session to get the the bulk of the work done in the chamber of origin. Mm -hmm. And again, the threat is some extra red tape if you can't make this deadline. So those of us who are familiar with this process and following lots and lots of bills – the time leading up to the crossover, uh, the, you know, the 69th day is the official crossover day. That's going to be middle to late March. And this is the window of time when everybody's watching really closely. This bill hasn't moved. If it doesn't move by crossover, that's a pretty strong indication. Even if it hasn't been voted unfavorably, right. if you don't make it by crossover, that's a pretty strong signal that the committee hasn't made it a priority to move the bill, and that's yeah, that, that's a strong signal. Doesn't mean the bill's dead necessarily, but if they wanted to do something, there are extra hoops. Again, yeah, it's yeah. if the bill was on the fast track, it would certainly be there in the opposite chamber by the crossover date. So, as Michael said, it's a very important day in Annapolis. A lot of people watching very closely various pieces of legislation to see if it makes that crossover deadline. And and the week or so leading up to the crossover date tends to be very hectic. Mm-hmm. These are days when the committees are done with most of their work, but they're having some quick voting sessions. But the House and the Senate will be piled up with things they're trying to move before this crossover date. And so the, the four or five days leading up to crossover are typically – you know, the Senate will be on the floor at, from 10 o'clock until 1. They'll leave for a couple hours. They'll come back and be on the floor from 3 o'clock till 6 o'clock. They'll have long days of floor debates. Some of it's debates, but a lot of it is just you know hearing, commi- hearing reports from committees with 15 bills on them, moving them through. Again, a lot of that's perfunctory, but you still have to take all those votes. So this is one of those concepts that is almost impossible to explain to an 8th grade civics class or a college sophomore class of political science. But on the 90-day calendar, the date of crossover is one of the three or four most important dates. It may be the single most important window in in the legislative process every 90 days. Yeah, I would agree. We now jump to the 83rd day. Uh, This is when the budget bill has to be passed by both chambers on our calendar. Sort of. April 2nd. Of course, this is a sort of uh, date, as Michael mentioned. But this is the day when, ideally, the budget bill would be passed. And sometimes there's a little bit of fool's gold here uh, that if you get to the 83rd day and the budget is not passed, I I think it's the governor is duty-bound to issue a call for an extended session. And so technically, this is a procedural thing that's it's just meant to hurry the legislature along. But it sounds to the uninitiated, it sounds like, wait, we're going to be here for an extra time. We're, we're going past 90 days. What's going on? And almost every year, you know, somebody somebody who's a, a new reporter in town or somebody who's a new you know policy person in town gets panicked about this proclamation for, a, for an, an extended or special session or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's almost always you know this is just a little bit of smoke and there's no fire behind it. Um, the the budget has gotten done by the 83rd day a few times, but it's it's the it's the uh, minority. It's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, we'll talk about extended and special sessions in a second, mm-hmm. but we have to mention the final date of interest on the legislative calendar that we're going to mention. It is the 90th day 
on our calendar is April 9th, and that is Sine Die, which literally means without fixing a day for future action or meeting. This is the adjournment of the General Assembly for the session. Game over. Dave. Game over. And, and I mean, just to I mean to make it clear what that means. That means every piece of legislation that's been introduced through the entire session for the entire 2018 session, as we're as we're speaking, uh, everything that's been introduced, if it hasn't gotten all the way through the process by this date. Even if it's made it all the way through, except for one little step, which happens, um, it happens all the time. Uh, but if it if it hasn't made it all the way through, they bang the gavel at midnight, midnight on Monday night, and it's over. And yep. every bill dies if it hasn't been completely approved. So, um, you know, this there are there are some states that do this differently. There are some states that leave things open for a two year process, uh, have a different kind of a calendar than ours. Uh, Maryland, I think, I don't know, this is, this is, I'm coming into my 27th session of doing this. I have an appreciation for our calendar. The, the definite nature of the Maryland timetable, I think, is an asset. Mm-hmm. You get done by 90 days. That's really plenty of time to do the things you feel like you need to do. Um, it, Especially because so much work has been going on throughout the year, right, to prepare for the 90 days. Sure. So you can always work backward. You mm-hmm. can always say, well, you know, you could have untangled this problem. You could have worked out this grievance and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, things are – there are always victims of the clock. Uh, I mean, Mako has been mm-hmm. – has had things we wanted to pass that have been sitting on uh, on the the table, you know, right under the gavel when it got banged at midnight, and we were one bill away or three bills away. We've had things debated at eleven fifty five right before midnight, so that happens. Um, it can be frustrating in the moment, but as a, as a matter of process, those of us who do this kind of stuff for a living, I will tell you, I really appreciate the finite nature of a 90-day session. Uh, It's hard work. It's a big commitment for everybody, legislators and other stakeholders. Uh, But knowing that it's going to be over in 90 days, and we're not a state where we we tend to let the budget debate drag out into the month of June. Uh, We're not like Pennsylvania that spent most of the last year without a a past budget. Uh, We're just not in that circumstance, and that's, by and large, a good thing. So just like crossover date, Signy die obviously is a flurry of activity all the way up until that final gavel at midnight. So we've gone through the dates of interest here. Um, we mentioned extended or special sessions, and I want to talk a little bit about this um, because it is interesting. So let's start with this is not a year where we're likely to have either one. Yeah, and <laughs> we, we say that. Yeah, in an election year upcoming, obviously we're not likely to do that. But as recently as 2012. Um, there were two special sessions. There have been 61 special sessions since the General Assembly became an independent body on February 5th, 1777. And the General Assembly may extend its sessions an additional 30 days by a resolution passed by three-fifths vote of the membership in each house. Yeah, and that's never happens. Yeah, that's not <laughs> going to happen typically. The only person with the power to call the legislature into a special session is the governor, Uh, The governor must do so on petition of majority of the elected membership in each house. It is important to mention that no single special session may last longer than 30 days. So, Michael, you were around in 2012. Those were the most recent special sessions. What are your thoughts here? I believe that had to do with taxes uh, and uh, casinos, if I remember correctly, in 2012, casino revenues. So there were two special sessions then. Give us your thoughts there. What do do you recollect? Well, the, I mean, in in general, the notion of a special session can be a couple different things. In in 2012, there was a fiscal package uh, of multiple bills that were sort of connected together. That the whole package of bills needed to pass for the the year's fiscal plan to make any sense. And in the waning hours of Monday night, on the last night of session. Um, the, you had the operating budget and then the capital budget behind it and a constitutional amendment for slots and, and a, a couple other things that are all connected. And to the surprise and, I guess, horror of a lot of stakeholders, uh, the votes weren't there. It didn't, it didn't pass. Uh, both the House and the Senate found themselves gummed up on some of these issues. And they ended up dropping the gavel 
with not everything done. So the the operating budget itself had passed, but there were accompanying bills. Uh, we we frequently have sort of an all encompassing fiscal cleanup bill called a, a budget reconciliation or budget reconciliation and financing act, the BRFA, sometimes called the BRFA, the BRFA. big BRFA, yeah, the right? BRFA. So um the but the the bill the budget bill had passed, so technically they could go home, but the budget bill contained a bunch of sort of poison pill provisions. So things have been cut out of the budget because the other bills hadn't passed. Nobody thought it was done. Nobody thought it was going to be a hard compromise to get the rest of it worked out. So uh, it was just a matter of convene everybody for a day and a half later in summer to iron out the details and get everything taken care of. And that is the, that, that's actually the typical script for for a special session. Yeah, and they can be useful because you decide what you're going to do beforehand. You come back into session, you focus. Nobody wants to be there. Your work has already been done. Um, and therefore, the idea is you'll act you'll act quickly to get that work done on that issue that you need to iron out because you want to go home. Right. And it, it's frequently fiscal issues that, that necessitate a special session. From time to time, there has been a pressing policy issue of one sort or another. A number of years ago, Maryland actually convened. It was an odd thing, but we convened a special session just a couple days before the start of the regular session because there, there was a panic about, about medical malpractice and uh, we, and the state wanted to enact some reforms to protect doctors uh, and to to stay working and, and serving in Maryland. So that was that was a one or two day special session. One issue come in sort of a surgical strike, predefined. Here's the bill. Let's talk about it quickly. Let's have a hearing. Let's vote it, and then let's move on. That's that's the typical circumstance. We had an exception to the rule back in 2007 a big fiscal catastrophe in 2007 Mm -hmm. and a a set of bills intending to basically get the house, the state's fiscal house in order. Uh, This involved changing tax systems. Uh, It involved a a number of other changes, a bunch of budget cuts and some changes in local aid and some other things. Uh, But this is all designed to try and address a big looming structural deficit. That was in the fall of 2007. And that went up against that 30-day boundary. That was a, it was about a four-week special session in October, November of that year. So obviously an exception to the rule there, but we do not expect a special session in 2018, although you never know. I also want to mention that the governor cannot adjourn the General Assembly, but before any proposed adjournment or signee die, the General Assembly must ask the governor uh, if they wish to make any further communications to either house, and then both houses must agree to adjourn. So that will be signy die. We hope that this episode of the Conduit Street podcast was interesting and filled in some of the gaps that you may have if you're not familiar with the process here in Maryland or the General Assembly here. As always, we will be updating the podcast with regular episodes when the General Assembly comes into session again on January 10th on Wednesday. And we hope that you will subscribe, give us a like. It helps us... uh, in the iTunes store. You can also access our podcast on the blog. And Michael, any closing comments before we wrap it up here? I can't wait for the show to start. Me neither. We will talk to you all soon, and we'll hopefully we'll see you around Annapolis. Annapolis.